Hello and welcome to the One Football Podcast. Picotado. What does that mean? Chopped. Chopped, okay. Chopped up. Chopped up in millions of pieces. Okay, uh, I think today is actually quite busy. Something happened. Uh, and and we should we should probably crack on with this podcast. Joining me, Ema Court, on today's One Football Podcast is Joanna Bueno. Hello. And Marcus Montiero. Hello again. Marcus, I'm always worried I don't get your surname right. No, it's correct. It's Monteiro. That's a Portuguese surname. It's correct. Okay. I thought there was some Italian there. There, there is a bit of Italian there, no? Um, my family is Italian, but somehow I have this Portuguese surname. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so by now you should know there are two One Football Podcasts Monday's Premier League Adventure with Dan Burke Thursday's one with all things Euro and World with myself the email address remains the same if you want to get in touch and send over any questions that is podcast at onefootball.com we start today with the news that Maradona arguably the greatest ever player to grace the grace the pitch passed away at the age of 60 on uh, on Wednesday evening uh, the outpouring uh, the outpouring of grief from young and old uh, of the football community I think is a testament to the player he was uh, there's already talk of naming the, the Stadio Sao Paulo after him or San Paulo after him uh, there's three days of mourning in Argentina and rather wildly Andre Villas-Boas has even suggested retiring the number 10 jersey across all football in honour of him uh, which is quite the suggestion there Andre um, I, I think there really are only a handful of people who transcend sport uh, whose name reaches every part of the globe and I think he was clearly one of them you can see that from the from the outpouring uh, from a, a personal perspective I mean I grew up in a, a small town in Ireland thousands of miles from Argentina even further from anything interesting ever happening Uh, it's like constantly waiting for a bus that never arrived Uh, but even there if you were the best player on the team and on my team that was a guy who lived two doors down from me named Daniel Byrne your nickname was Diego that's the sort of um, that's that's pretty cool isn't that cool that was the sort of I I remembered all of this this morning I don't know how uh, because my memory shot at this age Uh, but that was the thing you were a Diego if you were the best player on the team now maybe that was just maybe that was just my small (laughs) that was just my small town maybe that was just my 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 team but that was that was that was it um Obviously, the both of you grew up a lot closer to Argentina and, and Buenos Aires. Um, what sort of impact did you have on... Uh, this is weird because the, the Brazil, you've so many amazing players for so long. But did he have, this, did he have the same impact or, or how was he seen, how was he seen in, in Brazil? Yeah, he, he had a huge, huge, huge impact. We actually have to put in perspective here that Brazil and Argentina, the rivalry between these two teams is something that, I'm sorry, there is none in European football. So you cannot compare to, let's say, uh, Netherlands or Germany or England and Germany. And we grow up learning how to hate Argentina and Argentinian football. But he's beyond that. He's way beyond that. He is, he was absolutely amazing. And having grown up in the 80s, which is, of course, you know, the, the, the decade where he was shining the most, we were afraid of Maradona. Every time Brazil would play Argentina, I, it was shit myself because it was like, oh my God, let's hope he's not having a good day. Uh, my first memory of Maradona is actually the World Cup uh, 1990 where 
they were of course the current champions and Brazil and and and, it, and uh, Argentina faced each other in the round of 16 uh, by some sort of FIFA mistake in the draw because you know the two strongest South American uh, national teams are supposed to face each other either in the semi-final or the final and it was actually the first match that Brazil played well in that World Cup and Brazil was playing way better than Argentina but then he found that one spot and that one perfect pass to Kanija and that was a goal so he decided the match in a fraction of seconds so this is my first memory of Maradona and I I mean that's why I grew up fearing him every time we were about to face them I mean Marcus yeah, yeah Joanna and I are, are old and grey and, and haggard but, um, but you're young and you're young and youthful and got the full flush of life in you uh, what, what are your sort of memories of him yeah I, I grew up in the 90s so it was the end of uh, Diego's career already. But even though I remember when I was a kid in Brazil, we used it to play football on the streets. Uh, I don't think kids in Brazil do this nowadays. But in my time, we used it to do it. And, well, usually one team was Brazil and the other team was Argentina. Because <laughs> that's what we grew up uh, watching on TV. They were our biggest rivals. So as a kid, we wanted to be Brazil or Argentina. So if your friend, oh, I'm Brazil, then you're going to choose automatically Argentina. There is no other option. And that's like the, the, the best player from the Brazilian kids team would be Pelé. And the, the best player from Brazilian kids, uh, Argentina kids would be Maradona. And Mar- Maradona was not even playing anymore. So this is how strong his, uh, his sphere of influence was, let's say. And even though in Brazil we had many great players, as you said, there are a couple of them that they cross borders. And I think Maradona was just one of these. This is amazing. Kids in Brazil were imagining themselves as Maradona. Yeah, it happened quite often. I mean, uh, every time that we were playing, if you were not playing as your uh, like your team, like let's say Flamengo, Palmeiras, you were going for the national teams. And then you want to be Brazil, of course, because we're Brazilian, but well... If the opposite team is already Brazil, you must choose something else. <laughs> and then you are going for Argentina for sure. And then if it's Argentina, you are going for Maradona. Okay. Uh, Joanna, has anyone ever had as big an impact on the game as he did? Or are we overstating that a bit? Uh, that's not an overstatement. But I think we have we can name a few players that had such a huge impact on the game. Of course, Pelé. But Maradona was the first one with such a huge impact on televised football because Pelé played in the 50s and 60s where you mostly either you will go to the stadium or you would listen to the radio and you have some footage. You can search it on YouTube, but it's very bad quality. Um, After in the 70s, of course, then it started uh, televised football, but mostly on World Cups. While Maradona, growing up in the 80s, you would wake up on a Sunday morning and you turn on the TV, on the open TV, because Italian football was the biggest football in Europe, and you would look for Maradona's match. You would look for Napoli, also because Napoli was such a huge team and they had also Brazilian players. And so that's what you would do in Brazil. That's 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 how. That's why I think his impact was maybe considered bigger than the the wonderful players we had in the 50s and 60s and even 70s. I think uh, when we are talking about the impact of Maradona, I think we must admit that he was 
a culture icon, not only a football icon. Mm. So I think it's a little bit different when we talk about Pelé and when we have the discussions like, oh, who was better, Maradona or Pelé? That's a discussion inside the pitch. What Pelé did inside the pitch? Because if we are going to the cultural side and what each player did outside football, Maradona is bigger. There is no discussion. His impact outside football is is greater. I think the the biggest difference between the two of them, because growing up in Brazil, you grow up with this question of who's better, who's the best of all times, Maradona or Pelé? And being Brazilian, of course, we always say Pelé, but looking at the footage, you can agree with that. But uh, Maradona was human, which Pelé kind of wasn't. Pelé was perfect. He was the perfect athlete. He didn't get injured. He didn't do... He didn't, as we say in Brazil, he didn't pee out of the potty. You know, he did everything right. <laughs> and Maradona was human. He would, he got on drugs. He he got fat. Um, he got suspended. He would speak his mind. So this makes the 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 image of Maradona even bigger because you can relate to that. He's a true guy. He's a he, he's a human being. He's got flaws. You know, he screws up sometimes. Apart from of course, in the pitch, being not so human, being a bit of a, you know, of a god. Uh, but I think this is what is the biggest difference between the two of them. I think that's why people in Napoli re- re- related to him so much, too, that he could he, they could see that he was one of them, that he wasn't some sort of well on the pitch. He was obviously a, a god, but he was also just he was that human figure and he was you know he was flawed but that to me makes him it is my own personal opinion that that to me makes him far more interesting than a Messi or a Ronaldo oh no doubt about it he is the most interesting character you will ever find in football even if you can find Pelé better or even other players but when it comes to the character to the persona Uh, No one tops Maradona. Which leads us to, I mean, there's thousands and thousands of great stories out there about him. Uh, The couple of my favourites are the sign that pointed into the graveyard in Naples that said, you don't know what you missed. Um, when he uh, when they won the league, I think that's just absolutely brilliant. There was another story that Liam Gallagher was uh, tells uh, that they they were in Argentina. I think they'd done uh, as Oasis and they'd done a gig and uh, they went. Uh, they were at a club and he said that something like Sting was crying at the bar because he'd had his dressing room robbed. And Maradona walked into wherever they were and. Um, they went, you know, they, they wanted to meet him. and But he said only the Gallagher brothers could go up and meet him. So they went up to meet him and he's in this room and he's uh, a little bit worse for wear, let's say. And he's surrounded by hookers. And, you know, they get their photo taken and get out because they said the atmosphere was a bit crazy. But before they leave, Maradona turned to them and said, if you t- if you leave with any of these girls, I'll have you shot. <laughs> I just I can't imagine Lino Messi or Cristiano Ronaldo ever being in that sort of situation. Um, but that those two, I think, are probably my particular favorites. Uh, did, did anybody else have any stories that they'd like yeah, to add? Yeah, I like the one. Uh, it, it, it went viral a couple of months ago, actually, but... Uh, it was already famous before, and it's my favorite. It's there was this game in Napoli that they played in the mud. Uh, I don't know if you guys are aware of that. It's uh, there was this kid that was very sick, and this kid's uh, father went to the Napoli president and asked them to play a friendly match to raise money to to like to the treatment of the kid. 
And then Napoli president said no, but then Maradona heard of the story. And then uh, Maradona arranged a match uh, between the players and uh, another opponent. But they didn't play in San Paolo. They played in the kids' district in Napoli. Oh, that was uh... one of the poorest ones. So the pitch was only mud. And even though he went there, he did the warm-up in the parking lot. And he played the match. And he scored two goals. People went crazy. Uh, had like a couple of people on the on the stands. They, they raised money for the kid. And that's a, a, a bit of what Joanna said about Maradona being human. So he helped people. He never forgot where he came from because he was from one of the poorest districts in Buenos Aires as well. So he was a kid that didn't have anything when he was a kid. And he never forgot about it. And every time he had a chance, he would help those. I really like the 1990 World Cup and how he turned the whole city of Naples against their own country <laughs> because they played Italy. I think it was semi-final, semifinal in yeah. Sao Paulo. Uh, so the whole stadium was cheering for Argentina and not for their own country. <laughs> so this is amazing. I mean, who can do that? Who can make you cheer against your own country? <laughs> that is pretty amazing. Uh, I was once in a stadium with Maradona I think this is probably the closest I'll have ever gotten to him uh, I went to a Boca Juniors game in Buenos Aires uh, it was Raquel May's first game back uh, after I don't know where he'd been before him maybe potentially Villarreal somewhere like that and uh, he was in the stands and they um, he had his own private box there and the the, at the levels of adoration for him in, in the Bombonera were, were astounding. And I think uh, on certain Argentinian televisions, they didn't have the rights to show the, the Boca games. So what they would do instead is just show Maradona's uh, private box and, and him <laughs> celebrating. <laughs> I watched it. And so, you know, it was, yeah, quite, quite amazing. He, him celebrating is already a spectacle. Oh, we all follow the 2018 World Cup in Russia. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I think the level of... Um, not ad- it's beyond admiration. I, I don't passion. I, yeah, pa- passion. I think passion is maybe the best word to describe that the Argentinians have for Maradona. Uh, I was watching this morning the videos from uh, the, the funeral and, and all of this, and the passion that the people show. I, it's something, for example, that I don't see Brazilians nowadays doing for Pelé, for example. I don't see no. it. No, Pelé didn't bring that up and neither did Ronaldo or Romario. I think we can talk about Senna in that kind of passion. Mm, yeah, so yeah. Senna, Senna he was like a, a national hero for us. And But nowadays, I don't think Brazilians would do this for, for anyone, honestly. Uh, Flamengo fans would do that for Zico, but I think that's the first, the, 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 as much as we can get. Yeah, we're, we're not getting into this Flamengo conversation. <laughs> we had too much of it. Uh, but it is, like I said, it sort of brings us back to what the point we were making at the start that he he transcends all of that, and you know reached uh, reached every corner of the globe. Re- uh, you know, pretty astounding. Uh, the final, final question on this, because we, we're, we're probably going to do a podcast special just on him tomorrow. Um, so a nice, easy one for both of you to answer. Was he the best ever? No, that's Pelé. Yeah, I mean, best player, it's that's Pelé for sure. If you, if you best put, character, if you, then it's Maradona. If you put your Brazilian bias aside, 
Is he the best it, ever? It's still Pelé. I, I yeah. told you this already. You have to. You haven't seen Pelé. Uh, look for the movie uh, Pelé Eternal. I think it's the name, or well, at least in Portuguese it is. And you know, skip the interviews. Just watch the the plays and the football. It's out of this world. There Pelé is no bias complete. if it's Brazilian. Yeah. So and Pelé was more complete as well. Maradona, he was amazing, but he was left-footed. He he's just like Messi. He does nothing with his right foot. Pelé was more complete in the sense that he defended, he went forward, he started the plays, he finished the plays. Uh, he was out of this world. Yeah, Pelé was a machine. He was like so complete. Uh, like a good header, a spectacular header actually, and fast and strong. It's now as a player, Pelé was better. We're gonna. I'm gonna have to get an Argentinian on this podcast and get a proper answer to this question. <laughs> um, but he is way better than Messi, and I'm sorry for your 15 year old listeners. He is better than Messi, and Messi still needs to eat a lot of rice and beans to reach Maradona's level. I'm gonna publish uh, your uh, Twitter profile on this so that people can uh, address all of your uh, all of the abuse to you, Joanna. <laughs> anyway. Uh, the wretched international break is over uh, good normal Champions League football has resumed so we can all breathe again thank the Lord uh, both of you saw the PSG performance on Tuesday night Joanna you were not impressed with Thomas Tuchel and how he approached no, this game no I wasn't I think I, I, for, for a second there I thought it was Mourinho on the uh, managing the team <laughs> But, you know, I, I actually, I wasn't impressed, but I have to agree with him because if Paris Saint-Germain had lost, they would have been out of the Champions League and that was unthinkable. So he played safe. He got yeah. a penalty that uh, was not a penalty, in my opinion. I'm not sure if he was planning on scoring so early, but after they scored, it was like 11 players behind the ball. They had 35% ball possession. I think at some points even lower than that. Um, I, I one one thing that uh, I have to recognize that Tuchel did very well was he put the attacking trio uh, Mbappe, Di Maria, and Neymar to press, which is something that they don't do, and which is something that cost them the matches against Leipzig before and United before. So they pressed a lot. Uh, Neymar did a great uh, defensive center back. <laughs> performance there I've got a real problem with that I think if you have got Neymar and who I'm not a massive fan of but I know can realise he is a huge a great player you've got Di Maria you've got Mbappe and you play to give away the ball yeah, I, I am against that oh, as well. I'm really against so, that. That's a real small club mentality for me. Yeah, but I think exactly. they adapted to Leipzig football, actually. Because as Joanna said, the last time they faced Leipzig, they suffered. So they needed to adapt some, some points. I, I agree, they didn't play well, I think. They could have done better. But at the same time, he tried to, to adapt to, to the opponent football. And that's, that's a smart choice. Mm. I agree with you in 100%. That small club mentality. When you have PSG, you have that amount of money, you have that squad, you shouldn't do that. This is what I criticize Simeone for because he has an amazing squad and he plays to win one new every single match with a free kick goal. But I think that he was just afraid to be out. He was just afraid to get some sort of counter and you know give away the match in the last minutes like he did before. So he wanted to play safe. So at some point, yeah, he was okay. He was right. Playing safe. 
Come on, they've got the three. They got three of the best forwards in the world. There, go attack them. Go tear them down. Ugh, yeah, I've I've got a real problem with it. But look, maybe that's maybe that. I mean, I've nothing to lose. I'm not a PSG fan. I don't manage PSG, so a lot easier for me to say. Um, Neymar at centre back. Is this the future? <laughs> I hope not. Yeah, no. But I have to say that he did a good performance as a centre back. He was stealing balls, you know. Yeah, well, it was the only thing he did. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, but he he did a terrible performance as an attacker. And yeah, no, a, he didn't play yeah. well. It was, it was a very shy game from Neymar. Uh, I mean, apart from his defensive side, but. There, there was one thing that I didn't like about Neymar, not only about this game, to be honest, but this game, it was very open for everyone to see, is that he was, like, where his head was at. Like, he was getting too stressed out over some simple falls. And why? Just why is that? I mean, come on. It's, it was really unnecessary from Neymar. You mean he was getting angry with his teammates or? Yeah, I mean, he received some falls and the referee Mm. and then, I mean, he is very famous for that, complaining all the time. But this game specifically, it was like over the top. Okay. Yeah, he. I guess he's still suffering a little bit after coming back from injury, maybe not a full fitness too or. Yeah, I think he still needs uh, some time, but still. Okay. Uh, What did we make of Leipzig's performance? Uh, they try to find a solution. They try to, you know, <laughs> penetrate into the box and to win over the pressing, and they couldn't. Uh, so I think in the beginning of the second half, they were a bit better, and they kind of... Uh, Leipzig does a lot of uh, triangles in the pitch, you know, those passes where you kind of penetrate with escaping the pressing by passing the ball and then getting it back up front. They couldn't do that. And I think it showed that that uh, they're a bit limited, but mostly I think they need a center forward. They need uh, they need the Timo Werner. They need the Mateus Cunha, who are the players that they actually lost, because uh, I, it was Forsberg and Paulsen. They missed some goals that oh my god, they created chances, but they missed someone to put this in the back of the net yeah that that, that team of Werner guy he, he'd really fit in well with that team they should they should they should have a look at him again yeah it was a great loss and actually they didn't replace in the same like the same level right Mm-mm. so that's no. one of their biggest problems for, for this season for this season indeed um, PSG and Leipzig on six points two games to play they both have to play Istanbul and United who would you fancy making it to the knockout stages Marcus I think I think PSG will will be in the the round of sixteen. Oh, what a shame! And and the United. Okay, yeah, United look pretty strong. Uh, you watched the the Man United game. I yeah, did. You sound like you regret that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it it was not a great game. It was too easy for United. They played. It's a very unpredictable team. I I, I believe some some games they are. Not in their best form, but other games, just like this one, it like yeah. suddenly Bruno Fernandes decides to play as as Cristiano Ronaldo, <laughs> and then he does the job. So what a goal he scored in this last game, Jesus! Yeah, that was that was that was pretty amazing. He he fairly he fairly hit that. What did you make of Cavani, who was making his first start for the club? Yeah, Cavani was uh, for a first match. It's okay, but I think he was a little bit shy. But it's normal. He just arrived at the club. He needs to get used to the teammates. So 
Okay. Um, anything else then about that game other than your regrets of watching it? No, I'm not really regret of watching it. I just expected a little bit more emotion, but we didn't have it. So, okay. I mean, as a United supporter, I think they are very happy with it. Um, well, I think they are going to go to the knockout stage as the first in the group, honestly. Yeah. I mean, given their league form, that's probably pretty decent. They'll, yeah. they'll, be, they'll be happy enough with that. Uh, elsewhere, Joanna, you watched Atalanta, who got absolutely yes. hammered by Liverpool a few weeks ago, but they took their revenge. Yes, they did. What happened? <laughs> uh, I'm still waiting for Liverpool to come on the pitch. I guess they stayed <laughs> in the locker room. <laughs> they didn't shoot on goal once. So I I don't know what Liverpool that was. I mean, of course they have a ama- very important players injured and they're just struggling. They've been playing really really top football for what three seasons now. So it's tough when you do that. You you can't keep up. They try to in the transfer season they try to strengthen their bench because of that because you know players can't keep playing eighty matches a season and the the best they can. But uh, the injuries are a result of that, and I think that he was uh, Klopp was lacking a little bit of options there, and uh, I, I was unrecognizable. That's not the Liverpool we uh, got used to in the last few years. Is that because of the changes he made and with the fringe players coming in, or? No, I think it wasn't just that. I think, yes, the, the players coming in and, you know, not having probably trained a long time uh, with that starting 11, with that lineup for... Uh, and, of course, you know, that lineup was not... It's not 50% of what it is when you have Van Dijk and you have everyone... Like Salah was coming back from, from uh, coronavirus. Mm. So when you don't have all your top players, which is a amazing squad, fit and ready to go... So that makes a difference. But I think it's more like motivation and, you know, they've got used to winning. Atalanta is not a, such a big team. Of course, they 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 had such a, an amazing result in the first leg. So they were thinking it was a bit easy. They're playing in Enfield. Oh, come on. We, we already have, what, nine points. So we're already through to the next stage or almost. So they underestimated the match, I guess. Okay. Um, and deserved defeat is what Klopp said afterwards. I guess he's right. Yes, yes. That was very deserved. Uh, you would see Atalanta pressing, Atalanta, you know, uh, putting some pressure in the attack and going for it and giving them a lot of trouble. And you wouldn't see uh, Liverpool try a counter. You wouldn't see Liverpool, they got a first goal. You wouldn't see them trying to equalize the match. They looked like they didn't even want to equalize the match. So very deserved. Yeah, that was odd that they looked so blunt going forward, given, you know, Liverpool's firepower. Exactly. Yeah. Even with Jota, who we were talking the other day on the podcast, who is amazing and has been doing amazing he was like completely you know turned out okay uh marcus you watched a big big win for real madrid over inter milan uh madrid of course inconsistent of late but what did you make of their performance who who stood out for you they played well they played well madrid and i think the same thing i said about manchester united applies for madrid here because some games they are doing well, the other games they are doing really bad. But this one was one of the good ones. And I think Rodrigo, how can you not say about Rodrigo? I mean, 30 seconds after he's in the pitch, he scores. So 
the kid has star, as we say in Brazil, the kid has a star. <laughs> well, we're, we're big fans of Rodrigo over here, aren't we? Yeah, I mean, very well deserved. He's being he's playing better than uh, Vinicius Jr. right now. So and he's more decisive. He scores goals when he comes in. He yeah. always yeah he always takes the opportunity. Unlike Vinicius, a little. Yeah, bit. it looks like uh, Rodrigo came to Europe uh, in a better form than Vinicius. Like more ready to the European game than Vinicius Jr. Let's say. I think Vinicius he still needs to adapt to the to the style of the game in Europe. While Rodrigo arrived already in a better form for that. Did you feel a little bit sorry for uh, Vidal? <laughs> well, it's Vidal. What can you <laughs> say about it? Vidal's oh, gonna Vidal. Such a stupid red card. Such a stupid red card. And such in a crucial moment. Uh, the game was still 1-0. If Inter didn't have a man, a man down, they they could try to to get a draw or even turn the, the score. So such a stupid move from Vidal's side. But did you feel like he had a point? Uh, I felt a bit sorry for him for once. And I was talking to my dad after the match and I was saying like, if I were a referee, I would have given cards to everyone and especially those those players that, you know, go against the referee complaining. And if I was the referee in that match, I would have given him a second red card. <laughs> Because after he got sent out, he got sent away, he was still complaining and he was refusing to leave the pitch. So I would have given him a second. I feel, I mean, I think he had a point though. Wasn't that a penalty? Yeah, I mean, it. I think it was uh, right to complain. The, the, uh, I mean, we cannot say for sure if it was or not a penalty. Uh, for me, it looked like a penalty too. But even though, if you are going to complain, you got to do it right, not the way he did it. Like he was, uh, how can we say? He was almost punching the referee. He was not do that. Yeah, he was passionate. Let's say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, choose South American. <laughs> uh, given the level of talent available to them, shouldn't Inter be doing a lot better than two points from four games in the bottom of their group? Oh, they should for sure. They should. I mean, uh, just up front they have Lukaku and uh, Lotaro Martinez. What a duo! They are amazing. So they could. And Conte is such an amazing coach as well. They they should have been done better. Yeah. Uh, any other Champions League points anybody wants to mention? Uh, I, I was surprised by, uh, I mean, I wasn't expecting a lot from Olympique Marseille, but I get, I have to say that I'm surprised by how bad they're doing. <laughs> they have zero points and zero goals. <laughs> Oh, poor, poor Andre Vies Boas. Yeah, I mean, it's we know that it's not their best season, and you know they're not doing so great in the league either. But it's not like they're in a very tough match, like Olympiacos and Porto is not in their best shape either. So they could have at least tried to score a goal. Yeah, they are not such a strong group. Um, they they could try something out, but yeah, it looks like they are not going to do it. You said it's not such a good season for uh, for Marcel, but I have the impression that it's never a good season for Villas Boas. <laughs> it never is a good season. That is true. You might have a point there. Shout out to Chelsea though, uh, top of the group, ten points, looking top good. Of the- Yeah, top of the group with, you know, a kind of last minute win there because you could see in the match that Rennes was pressuring and they were going to have a goal. They wouldn't leave the pitch until they scored the goal and they did. But then Chelsea didn't give in. So uh, great, uh, very opportunistic from uh, Giroud, the goal that he scored and very important also. So that was good. What was your Rennes prediction again, Joanna, just before we go? (laughs) 
that they would be the surprise of the Champions League, but the positive surprise, <laughs> which doesn't look like it's going to come true. No, maybe not. Now, with the Champions League out of the way, it's off to Spain we go to talk La Liga with Manu Dominguez. Hi, everyone. Hi, Ian. Uh, Manu, as usual, in Spain, it's Barcelona-Real Madrid fighting over the top spot. Wait, what? Real Sociedad are first with six wins from the last six games. Atletico Madrid are second. Villarreal are third. Cadiz are fifth. Granada are sixth. Barcelona in 13th, just four points above the relegation zone. Manu, when was the last time you saw a La Liga season this crazy? I don't remember Ian. I get actually when I was a child, I remember to see Barcelona in a sixth, seven position with Rado Miranti, Charlie Rashak, and, and and those coaches. Yeah. But but yeah, to see something like that, Barcelona in the in, in the middle of the of the table after eight matches, it's 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 really crazy. Uh, I'm trying to think. Maybe when 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 was it the Deportivo won the league? It was in 2002? 2000, 2000, yeah, uh, 2000, 2001 or 1999, 2000, yeah. I mean, 20 years ago. I mean, this year was the, the 20th anniversary. My God, that might be the last time when something was this crazy, this upside down. Yeah, but there were there were two years that Valencia won La Liga too, mm-hmm. and even Barcelona I remember to finish fourth too, but yeah to see Barcelona in the thirteenth position is it's yeah unbelievable. Okay, let's let's talk about Barcelona in a minute. Let's let's focus on Sociedad first. How on earth are they doing it? Six wins from six, top of the table. I mean, maybe their best start to a league of all time. Yeah, Real Sociedad is a team with a lot of history. We, we have to remember that Real Sociedad is one of those teams that they have already won, won La Liga. I, I don't remember how many, but in the 80s they won twice La Liga, so it's a, a team with a lot of history and and they are they are used to, to, to win titles, to be important in Spain. But that's true that in the last 20, 20 years, I remember only one season with Darko Kovacevic and Nihat, that they were fighting for La Liga against Real Madrid till the last two or three matches. But, but yeah, but this season is is really impressive. And actually, it's not only about the results. That of course they are first with, as as you say, with with six or, or seven wins. Mm-hmm. It's the way that they are playing. If to all of all of the one football users, if if they really want to watch a, a really nice football match, a really good performance, I would recommend entirely recommend to watch Real Sociedad matches first of all, because David Silva is playing there. And I would say that David Silva, as everyone, every Manchester City fan know, is actually the meaning of good football, and and he's performing incredibly good. And second, because it's a team that play with the ball, playing around Silva very well with a lot of young players from the academy, and and yeah, and the, their performance in the last matches they are they are really good ones. It's it's not only about the results; it's about the the way that they are playing. They are they are doing very good. Okay, so, I mean, talk talk to us a bit more about that style because is it like that sort of typical Spanish style that we would expect, or, or is there or is there something more to it? Yeah, I would say it's closer to this typical tiki taka style that that yeah we get used in in Spain, more closer than the typical north of Spain uh, north of Spain team that used to play like direct to like Atlético de Bilbao with with Fernando Llorente or even Real Sociedad in 
the last 10, 15, 20 years. Actually, one of the keys, as, as I said before, is, is David Silva. But yeah, we have to mention to another player who who played for, for Newcastle not not long time ago, Mikel Merino. They are players that they really like the ball. We have as well Guevara, Janusak, talented ones with, with the ball in, in their feet. And they try to play with the ball, but at the same time, they are vertical. They have like Mikel Ollarzabal or, or Porto that they are looking always for the space. So there is a kind of mix, but always around the ball. So yeah, it's, it's close to this Spanish style that won the World Cup and the two Euro Cups uh, this century. Is that the is that the stereotype of northern Spanish teams that they play a bit more direct? Yeah, especially in the 80s and the 90s, uh, Atleti Bilbao, Real Sociedad, they were teams closer to this English style, like the direct games with, with, with big strikers. But yeah, in, in the last years, they, that changed a lot, especially in Bilbao when, when Bielsa decided to start there. Even Atleti Bilbao is going closer to that, to that style too uh, in the last seasons with, with Iñaki Williams and, and Garitano. But Alguacil changed completely, Real Sociedad. They are trying to, to create football with the ball. They are trying to be... Uh, to, to, to defend with the ball too. At the end, if you, if you had the ball, it's not possible that you that you receive a goal, and 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 that's what what Alguacil is trying with with his players. Um, and at the end, the players the, that I had mentioned, uh, David Silva, Janusak, uh, mm. Guevara, Mikel Merino, Subimendi, they are players that like to to to, to keep the possession, and and that's the way that they are that they're giving them results because we have to remember that Alguacil is already his second season, his second season and a half, because he, he started in the middle of the season two and a half years ago. The results when he started were, they were not the best ones, even there were a lot of people that they were criticized with him. And the yeah, Russia decided to keep him because he had an idea. He He's a coach that he was working in the academy for, for a long time. And at the end, when, when you keep a project, you, you finally get, get the results. And, and that's what Russia is, is getting nowadays. Mm. And I mean, we've mentioned Silva, we mentioned Marino. I mean, but who who else is shining for them? And specifically, I want to know how Adnan Yanazai is doing. And I'm, uh, uh, I'm quite interested in him. Yeah, for me the two keys, obviously, Silva Marino that I have mm-hmm. already mentioned. It, uh, another player who is really important one is Oyar Zabal. Actually, Mikel Oyar Zabal, I would say that it's the best Spanish player nowadays. I mean, he's top scorer, if, if I'm right, with seven goals, even scoring with, with the national team. He has everything. He's talented with the ball. He's vertical. He, he has this this easy ability to, 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 to score in front of the goal that actually is what it costs a lot of money and and then there are like so many young players that they are get used to playing that way because they came from the academy like as I say Subimendi or Guevara or even we can mention Gorosabel it's a it's a, an amazing uh, right back and actually you have the option to mix with some experienced players, as Mikel Merino, for example. He's not from the academy, but he has experience in uh, he he has experience in, in Premier League. Uh, Monreal, Nacho Monreal, for example, too. Isaac is a young player, but who played for for Borussia Dortmund, but he's a really talented one. And even Porto, Porto, it's is one of my favorite ones. Mm. And he's the one who fight with Andan Janusak. They are like two different profiles of players, completely different. Both of them they play in the in the as a wingers in the in in the right side, Janusak, as everyone who 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 follow the Premier League knows, is a talented one, but very 
inconsistent. Mm -hmm. Janus Hatch maybe can, can bring you an, an amazing performance as he did uh, last weekend. It was it was really delicious to watch him to watch him against against Cadiz. And then Porto is a, a winger, very vertical, that he's running all the time with a lot of a lot of a lot of work to, during the match, and who actually scores a lot of goals. I mean, Porto first season in La Liga with Girona, he scored around 14, 15 goals, showing that that he's a guy who, who has this ability that we were mentioning before with with Oyar Zabal. So this is like a really big 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 mix and, and actually all of them they complement each other amazingly um, You mentioned the academy is it true that 16 of their first team squad have come through the academy? Yeah, I I I had to check it because I was okay. not sure. But okay. after after doing my my research, it's true. It's sixteen players from from the first team. They they came from from the youth academy. A lot of them they just uh, came from the second team to the first team this year. Mm -hmm. The most important one probably Subi Mendy. It's a. a top midfielder who likes to, to, to play with the ball. There is as well uh, Roberto Lopez, who has already be, be called for the second national team, the under-21. Uh, another one is Ander Barronechea, probably is the top, top talented from the Jones Academy. And he's a characteristic uh, left winger who his uh, strong foot is the, is the right one. He tried mm -hmm. to go always to, to the middle and, and, and he has like a really good shoot. And, and yeah, 16 players. And at the end, if you can mix 16 players from the Jones Academy that they have already this, this pride feeling of of of, of belong of of, of, mm. of gratitude is my team with experienced 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 players such as uh, Nacho Monreal, David Silva, Mikel Merino. At the end, you are able to create this this amazing mix that that yeah that do that does gratitude become one of the stronger teams in, in La Liga. And of course, so many of them from the Basque country as well, which yeah, yeah, yeah. which is integral to uh, Sociedad's identity as a, as a club. Yeah, 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 and it's always this rivality between Atleti Bilbao and Real Sociedad because yeah, everyone knows the the, 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 the Atleti Bilbao philosophy, always only Basque, Basque players coming from the academy and Real Sociedad just trying to show a we are able to do it too even if we send players from from abroad as well but actually now we, we have 16 players from from our academy and we are on the top of la liga yeah nice to see um they obviously gonna have to return with the with the europa league do you think they'll be able to keep pace with that sort of thursday sunday schedule yeah actually that was one of the big issues that that i had at the beginning of the season because I don't. I didn't think that they were gonna be able to 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 keep their uh, their level because of this English calendar. And still, I'm thinking that. Still, I'm thinking it's only uh, the beginning of the seasons. They have played only four, uh, three matches in in the Europa League in January. Uh, it's gonna start the Copa del Rey, and January is really tough in in Spain because you have match every three days because all of the Copa del Rey matches they are they are played in in January. They have to play the sub the Super Cup the Super Cup the Super Cup as mm -hmm. well in in Arabia Saudi in January too. In my opinion, that's gonna be the the, the tough thing to to manage. I don't think they are gonna be able to manage. I think that sooner or later they are gonna go a little bit down. Hopefully not. Hopefully not because as I say, it's it's a pleasure to watch Real Sociedad nowadays, and I hope that they can stay. 
as long as it's possible in, in the top of La Liga. But yeah, in my opinion, it's it's going to be difficult difficult for them because even if they have a, a really big squad with a lot of young players to fight in three competitions, is everyone knows it's, it's, it's very complicated. Okay, as, as we said, Villarreal third, Cadiz fifth, Granada sixth, uh, Madrid obviously in fourth. Um, which of those teams do you think can make uh, or can maintain that run and, and remain at the, in the upper part of the table for the rest of the season? Yeah, from these three names that you have given to me, I I would say only Villarreal because Cadiz, okay. uh, they just came from the second division last year. They have a really good start because they defend very well, but it's not a team that I don't think is going to be able to be in top 10. Granada, maybe they can fight to be in the top 10, but as, as happens with Real Sociedad, they have to play every three days because they are in playing Europa League too, and the squad is not really big. And then Villarreal, of course, they are going to be able to be in the top five because it's an amazing squad with a really good coach. I guess that that you know him, Unai Emery, mm. and then such a nice players like Gerard Moreno, Paco Alcácer, uh, Dani Parejo, Coquelin. So it's a, a, a big squad, even if they have to play Europa League too. I think that they have enough quality in the team in order to fight for to be in the top five. I don't think so they're going to fight for La Liga. It's, it's impossible. Actually, for me, it's impossible for every team that is not called Barcelona or Real Madrid. But this season, Barcelona or Real Madrid seems that they are not going to be in, this, in these levels to get to achieve 90 or 95 points. So that opens the door to other teams that they are able to... to to win the trophy with less than 90 points, let us say Atletico de Madrid. And why not, let us say Real Sociedad, but as I said before, I think that they are not going to be able to keep this level uh, playing every three days, especially in January. January for me is going to be the moment, if they are able to finish January in the top two of La Liga, I would say, okay, they are able to, to do it. But yeah, we will see because January is, is a really tough month. But Barcelona are added in a title race already, you would say? No, I don't think so that, Bar- that Barcelona race is already over. I don't think so because Real Madrid is, is playing badly. Otherwise, if we had a, a strong Real Madrid already 9 or 12 points uh, over Barcelona, I would say that yeah, Barcelona was not going to have chances. But that's not the case. And even that's true that Barcelona is 13th. We have to remember Barcelona still have to play two matches, he has one match less than Real Madrid and two matches less than, than Real Sociedad. And the calendar that Barcelona has in the next month, it's really easy one, only a difficult match against Valencia at home. I guess that they only have like two matches away that they are like not complicated ones against Cadiz and I don't know who is the other the other opponent and all of them in the Camp Nou. So yeah, I will I will say that we have to wait with Barcelona till till the end of the year because if they are able to win like 20, 21 from 24 in the next eight matches, seven matches that they are coming in the follow month, month and a half, Barcelona is already in the race. How come Barcelona can be so good in the Champions League, obviously already qualified for the next round, and so poor in the league? What, what What's going on there? It's quite a, it's quite a discrepancy. <laughs> yeah, it has to be with the numbers at the end, because if you watch how Barcelona played against Dinamo de Kiev in Camp Nou two, three weeks ago, or how Barcelona played against Ferenbaros as well in Camp Nou, you realize that the level 
of uh, its performance was really similar to the ones that they had played in La Liga against Alaves or against uh, Getafe, for example, and even against Atletico. But Atletico is much better team than Ferenc Baros or Dinamo de Kiev. Sevilla is much better than them. Real Madrid too. We have to say that Barcelona played against very good teams in the first eight matches in La Liga because they have already played against Atletico de Madrid, Real Madrid, Villarreal and Sevilla, four of them. So I I guess that that's that's that, that's the the reason. Of course, yeah, Barcelona has Juventus in, in its group stage. Barcelona won 0-2 two, uh, two against Juventus. Juventus that is not even performing well this season. So in my opinion, the level is not so different in terms of, of performance. But yeah, in terms of results, of course, because in, in Champions League, it's four matches, four wins. And in La Liga, as, as, as you know, they, they, have, uh, they have won less, less matches than, than in Champions League. Mm. Um, it seems they won't be able to buy any players in January either because according to Victor Font who uh, might be the next president that they're almost bankrupt is, is that true? yeah it seems it seems that Barcelona has, has not money at all they are going to try to sell someone in, in January actually I'm curious to know who is going to the one who who, who leaves the club because even the, the squad of Barcelona is not so big. People mm. are talking about maybe Carles Alenia, maybe trying to look for someone who is interested in Junior Firpo, who in my opinion is, is a terrible player. So I don't know who is gonna be who is gonna want to, to buy him. And in case that they are able to to put yeah, Junior or Alenia away, they are gonna try especially to sign a, a, a central defender because after Piquet's injury Barcelona need a, a centre back. And even a striker, but the striker is going to be more difficult one because everyone knows that the striker costs a lot of money. There is the option of the Pai, who is actually not a striker, and his contract expires in June 2021, and he could be the option. But yeah, we will see. I mean, Barcelona need at least one one new player in in January, and they are going to try to to sign him. We will see how. Uh, there was talk of Titi being one of the ones that would go. Yeah, Kuman say that Tuntiti will start to be with his teammates in a couple of weeks. The big Sam, the big Sam. Uh, yeah, I mean, with Tuntiti nobody knows because yeah, his 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 needs it, it, it's it's always a complicated thing, a complicated issue since since he decided not to operate before the World Cup 2018. Mm. But yeah, Barcelona need a, a central defender, Titi's experienced one, if he's able at least to play like three, four matches and to give some rest to, to Lenglet, who actually is the the only centre back that Barcelona, the only real centre back that Barcelona has now because Araujo it's uh, an experienced player. Yesterday, for example, was Oscar Mungueza from the from the academy, the one who who played. So if Untiti is at least able to play against easy teams in in Camp Nou, is is going to be a, a big help. And then I guess that Barcelona will try to to sell him in January because he's a guy with with some market, especially in France. But at the same time, he's a guy who who has a, a really big contract and I'm not really sure if Untiti is going to allow the Barcelona to, to, to sell him and to earn less money in another team. Is there any sense at all, Manu, that with you know with all the injuries and with the form that uh, some of the players are in, that um, more academy players will be brought in to kind of revitalize the Barcelona team? Yeah, that's the idea. 
And actually, that's the idea why Barcelona chose Ronald Koeman. I mean, people can like or 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 doesn't like or don't like Ronald Koeman. Actually, is not the, the kind of coach that that I love, but it's a coach that he used to 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 follow the, the academy team. He used to try to give opportunities to young players. He did it when he was in Valencia. We have to remember that the coach who decided to, to put Mata in the team when Mata was 19 years old was, was Ronald Koeman in a team where uh, Joaquin was there, Albelda, Baraja, David Silva, a lot of uh, ex more experienced players than Mata. Well, no, David Silva, he was young, but he was already in top level. And, and he has done as well when he was in, in Netherlands and, and Great Britain. So people expect from, from Ronald Koeman to give chances to, to the players from the academy. Yesterday was Oscar Mungueza, um, uh, who else? Uh, Conrad, the, the guy from USA, entered yesterday as well in the, in the second time. We have seen that Koeman trusts Pedri, who is 16 years old, or Ansu Fati, for example. So we hope that Kuman is going to give the chance to, to players from the academy. Yesterday he said that Mungueza has a lot of options to play again, uh, to play uh, again this weekend in, in La Liga. And we will see, actually, that is how it used to happen. When a big, big team is having some travels, some travels that's the moment when the young, younger players, they are having the, the opportunity. And, and if they are good, they, they stay in the first team. It happened with, with Luis Van Gaal in, in the 20s, with Xavi Hernández and Carles Puyol. There were like really tough seasons for Barcelona, and that was when Luis Van Gaal decided to put them to, to play. Even, for example, I, I remember Andres Iniesta first minutes, they were with, with Luis Van Gaal too. So, yeah, we will see. Maybe if the Academy of Barcelona works well, maybe that's the moment to see, to see those players uh, with Messi and company. Lovely. Thanks very much, Manu. You're welcome. It was a pleasure, Ian. So as you know by now, in this part of the pod, we get a fan on to geek about, uh, geek out about their club. Uh, last time around, it was Chloe Beresford on Fiorentina. This time around, it's YouTube star and Tottenham fan Matt Froelich. Wow, what an intro! <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you you are you are a YouTube star. I know you get stopped in the street and get selfies and all of that sort of thing. I know you're not on Nico's level. But no, you're, not, you're getting not, there. Not you're getting quite. There. But following on from Fiorentina, that's a big task. It is, isn't that's it? It's a good history. Man. And Chloe had an amazing story. Uh, basically, mm. she had family connections. So you're gonna have oh to boy. be. Yeah, you're gonna have to be. Yeah, you're gonna have to be pretty good with this one, uh, Matt. Uh, okay, so the the first question is why Spurs? What well, I th I owe it all to my dad. Oh. Um, yeah, to, to be a Spurs fan, I think he. Um, he was lucky enough to be taken to Wembley as a kid for, for a football game and it happened to be the League Cup final um, in 1972, I believe, or three against Norwich. And uh, and yeah, he saw Spurs win and um, my grandfather was a Wolves fan and he thought, ah, sod that. Um, wow. <laughs> it's not about Wolves, it's about Tottenham instead. So yeah, he, um, he adopted Spurs and then there was no chance in hell that any of his children were going were gonna to support anyone else. So wait, hold up. Your, your grandfather was originally a Wolves fan. He was. I think it was something to do with the fact he was um, evacuated there as a child during the war. Oh, wow. Oh, hey, you're doing good already, Matt. <laughs> um, yeah, he was. He's a, he still is um, a big Wolves fan. Um, 
I think he, uh, yeah, he was devastated at the back end of last season in the Europa League. But yeah, he's a he's a big Wolves fan, and uh, yeah, my dad just thought that's not really for me. So he was at Wembley, um, saw Spurs for his first game, and that was it ever since. Okay, but you're you're. I want to I want to check your grandfather's credentials here. Mm. Is he he's still a Wolves fan, or has he converted to Tottenham? No, no, he's he is still Wolves. Yeah, we <laughs> he's taken. He 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 often goes to. Uh, he often goes to the Tottenham Wolves games um, with my dad and sort of sits there quietly and mumbles to himself. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I, I, I've been with him a few times and he sort of, he has to do that thing when you're sat on the opposite end and sort of clap and pretend you appreciate it. But really he's, he's dying inside. Yeah, I, I've, I've done that before. I've been taken, yeah. I've been taken in with, uh, might have been Stoke fans that I went with and I just had to pretend, you know, that yeah. I, was, I was enjoying it all. Yeah, um, I think. Yeah, did he? Did your father then take you to games as a child? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. We had uh, we had season tickets. Um, we had season tickets back when it was easy to get season tickets at Tottenham. Mm. <laughs> I still remember being was in the nineties. Oh, Matt, we um, we missed you there. Yes, nineteen ninety seven was my first game. You cut out. You cut out when you said, "I still remember." Oh, oh. Um, so yeah, I still remember being able to pick our seats. <laughs> That's wow. how few Spurs fans there were. Yeah, so okay. nineteen ninety-seven. I started going and yeah, he took me and my brother and yeah, we went we went pretty much every single home game and the few away games every season for about twenty or so years. Do you remember your very first game? I do. We beat Sheffield Wednesday three two. Wow. Okay. And uh, Do you remember who scored? Yes, David Ginola scored. I remember that. So you were you started going to Spurs when they were still a little bit glamorous. David Ginola. No. They'd already had the Klinsman years. Then you had David Ginola. That's No, no, know. no. This this was when Klinsman returned to save us from relegation in 97, 98. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now that you was um, it. Yeah, he scored four goals away at uh, Park against Wimbledon. We won 6-2 and beat relegation with, I think, two games to go. Wow. Okay. So, yeah, that was my, my first away. That was my first footballing memories. But I think... For me, I kind of came in when Spurs were mid-table, lower half of the league. But for my dad, he'd just seen the end of of Gaza, the Lineker era, the '91 Cup final. He, you know, he was on the come down, whereas this was my introduction, so I didn't know any better. <laughs> um, so, for those who don't know too much about Tottenham, maybe you could just give us a, a history lesson on the club. Um, yes, I can do for sure. Um, I don't know how kind of detailed you want me to go with the. No, this is your chance. Yeah, this is your chance to nerd out, Matt. So you, you this go, is you, the you chance to nerd out. Um, so yeah, they're one of the oldest teams actually in uh, in England. Founded in 1882 um, as an amateur club, as an amateur club for a way for the the guys who played cricket to actually play football during the winter months because they had nothing else to do. Um, and yeah, it was it was always been always has been in North London, uh, starting off on on Hackney Marshes, um, where they used to play games, and it was sort of uh, a team that grew rapidly um, in their notoriety in the area. Certainly, drawing in fans who would watch basically just on the side of a pitch, like you would in a Sunday league match, um, and then it kind of brought about the need to to move into an actual stadium, and they moved into White Hart Lane um, just before the turn of the century. <laughs> just before 1900 and yeah there's been um i'd say periods of success not really sustain, sustained success um for the club lots of uh lots of fa cups 
um, the league and FA Cup double in the 60s, which was the, the golden era, which people still like to remind us about to this day. <laughs> um, and then kind of a breakthrough on the European scene with a couple of UEFA Cup victories and Cup Winners' Cup. Um, the, the thing is with Spurs, the, the history always seems to be filled with um, anecdotal records, are, I, I call them. Okay. Um, very sort of things where you look back and think, oh, they were the first to do this or, you know, the first team to achieve the, the double in 1961. Um, first non-league side to win the FA Cup in 1901, which to think of today, you think of someone like, God, who was it who got to the to the quarterfinals? Was it Lincoln a few seasons yeah, ago been, from, yeah. from, from, the, from the National League? to win the FA Cup, the first team in 1901. First British team to win the UEFA club competition with the Cup Winners' Cup. First winners of the brand new UEFA Cup in 72. Um, so that therefore the first British club to win two major, two major European trophies. There's always this sort of anecdotal success of all these bizarre records without actually being too successful over any sort of sustained period. Um, but I think it's more on the pitch where there's been a, there's always been a Tottenham way of doing things, especially since that 60, 50s and 60s side um, that really sort of stands out throughout the history and the, the players and the style of play more so than than the, uh, yeah, any sort of crazy amount of trophies that they've won. Well, go, in, go into that a bit more and explain it. Um, so, so basically the Spurs won the, uh, the double in, in 1960-61 um, and it was sort of based on a push and run side, as, as it was called, um, from Bill Nicholson. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was he was the guy that sort of, I guess, spearheaded Tottenham into this era of success in the 60s and 70s. But it wasn't necessarily just from him. And I think this is where it kind of shows that the style of football really took many different paths in football in general and at Tottenham. And it was started before him by someone called Arthur Rowe, um, who was part of the Tottenham side as well, and then uh, was a manager too. Um, and yeah, it kind of just sort of passed on from there, really. Um, and it really made them a, a kind of big success because it was something that wasn't necessarily seen in England before this. It was very much at the time, the Hungarians and the Austrians were definitely sort of proprietors of football in, you know, in the, uh, in the famous coffee houses, as they call it in the twenties and thirties of, of, of really tactically reinventing the game. Um, And I think, yeah, Spurs kind of really took this, took this to the new level, certainly in the English game. Um, but yeah, there's very much, it's very much a, a Bill Nicholson driven thing. Um, the most famous person in Tottenham's history. Mm. And just for those who don't know, like push and run is basically like a, a kind of one-two or given. Yeah, exactly. Sort of it, was, it, yeah. it was based around the movement. I think this is, this is kind of, <laughs> I'm going to go out or go all out here and, and take credit for everything amazing that Barcelona do. Um, <laughs> but yeah, there was uh, a guy who used to play for Tottenham um, called Vic Buckingham. And he used to uh, uh, manage them. And he went on to, uh, he played a few hundred games for the club and went on to manage the likes of Ajax and Barcelona, um, including giving Johan Cruyff his debut at Ajax. Mm. Um, and both times at Ajax and Barca, he was succeeded by Rinus Michels. 
who of course the f- if you're the talking very about famous, yeah. exactly if you're talking about Barcelona today total football Guardiola Cruyff Rinas Mikels he you know he sort of took um inherited twice a team from Ajax and Barcelona who I wouldn't say had been taught total football because he was definitely the master but certainly the sprouts were put into their head um of how football could be played from Arthur Rowe mm. um, sorry from Vic Buckingham then Arthur Rowe took that over at Spurs whilst Vic went over to, to the continent. And then as a manager, he coached Bill Nicholson, who then went over to take on from him um, I'm in 1958. So they kind of, they went uh, slightly two different directions, but you can trace that lineage of the total football developing into what it is now in Spain with Barcelona and that push and run side at the time were sort of similar ideas in their concepts, um, but not always, not always, uh, played in exactly the same way. I think English players are slightly different. So essentially Tottenham are the most important club in all of Europe. Well, I mean, you could put it that way. (laughs) We're probably skipping over a lot of um, a lot of major figureheads in other clubs, but certainly, yeah. So it's Nicholson. It's that double. It's that. It's that sort of style that defines the the sixties and seventies, which are the, the the glory years for Spurs, right? Yeah, absolutely. They were definitely. It's because they had the trophies to match the football, and I think that's what the difference is between certainly recent Tottenham. Um, and I say recent, within the last sort of 30 years, where the, the players have been sensational at times and some of the football's been brilliant, but just the, the evidence, the titles, hasn't quite been there. Um, so, yeah, this certainly kind of, you know, was was the, the defining era of both. And I think he just, he really sort of summed that up. I mean, his first game, the very day he was hired, Spurs beat uh, Everton 10-4 of White Hart Lane. So <laughs> if that they don't, they don't make them like they used to. <laughs> no, they don't. And uh, yeah, as I say, he left quite a few years later with um, yeah, with a, with a pretty crazy amount of um, eight major trophies in 16 years at the club. The, the I know there were a couple of cups in, in the early 80s and, and the UEFA Cup in 84, but what's what's interesting for me is the sort of late 80s and then when the, the 90s to 200s, when you've so many great players coming through Spurs, mm. you think of Gascoigne, you think of Lineker, you think of that, that 91 yeah. FA Cup winning side. And then even later on, you get the likes, you know, we've mentioned before, Klinsman and Ginola and, you know, and then later on, Bale and Modric. So many great players. And I'm even forgetting people like Berbatov and, and Sheringham and, yeah, and Robbie Keane. So many of these great players coming through, but it never quite translated into, say, league success. Yeah, and I, I think that's where that's where the, the, the kind of Spurs identity comes from, is, is doing things with a flourish. And I, I think it not necessarily they've had the team or been able to build the team um, to kind of put these put these victories these title victories together. I mean, there's been so many points where Spurs have had good players and they've just been picked off by bigger clubs, mm. and they haven't really had, I said, the stature or the financial backing to stop their players' heads being turned. And that's kind of come to a halt recently um, because of what's been happening the last few years at Spurs, but it's always so difficult. I remember as a kid watching every single player go to Manchester United (laughs) and it wind me up like nobody's business. I mean, there was Sheringham leaving and then there was Michael Carrick and then there was Berbatov. And all the time you just saw the best players leaving and it was 
you know, it was a bit of, I don't know, it, it, it was a bit disheartening because you always felt that stopped Spurs from being at the next level. But yeah, the, as I say, the players that come through and the way that the club has been historically has always appreciated some, just some out of this world talent without having a phenomenal team. And they, they weren't helped to by a couple of, uh, let's say, odd managerial appointments uh, along yeah. the way you know you had uh, okay Hoddle maybe not as, as odd but you had like people like George mm. Graham in there again with, with his Arsenal links I think it's probably an odd one yeah. you had Jack Santini uh, Oof, uh, you know Juan de Ramos okay Ramos won a trophy but didn't last that long mm. Red, again Redknapp Fias boss Sherwood there's just been so many crazy managerial appointments along the way which just haven't quite helped the cause yeah, I, I think and that's the problem is that they've stopped the, the, the chop and change and people who weren't quite of the Tottenham ilk, I'd say, and their approach to football, it didn't really help because to, to put together a title winning side now for anyone who's not spending the big money, you know, the, the Manchester City money um, or the Liverpool money that they've spent or United, it takes quite a while. You can't put together a title-winning side in the space of two years. And I think whilst that two years' worth of building is going on, there needs to be some sort of football for everyone to get entertained by. And like you said, with Rane Ramos, he won a trophy. But mm. football was atrocious. <laughs> you know, yeah. every, no one really had their style of play and really sort of showed... Uh, a fantastic Tottenham team to watch without the success until, you know, Harry Redknapp got us into the Champions League, I'd say. Is, is there a sense with Spurs fans, um, and I don't mean this in any way to be patronising or, or try to uh, put all Spurs fans in one mm. in one bucket, that the, you know, the style of play sometimes compensates for that, that lack of success? Yeah, but I think that's the way it's always been. If you're not going to win things, then go, we Go down in flames. Yeah, exactly. Go, you know, go down with with a bit of flair and with you know a touch of skill and class, and that's the way it's been for ages. I mean, that you had Glenn Hoddle, arguably one of the finest players England has ever produced, um, who was phenomenal. I, I wish have got my dad on the podcast; he'd tell you more about that. <laughs> um, and on from Hoddle to to Gascoigne again, individually one of the finest players that England has ever seen, certainly the Premier League, never played for a quote-unquote big club in the Premier League, um, never won a league title. Then on from him, it's to David Ginola, again, came close with Newcastle. But these players just played with such, you know, style and flourish that you'd expect Tottenham to without actually having the team you know, together long enough and capable enough of winning a title. And, mm. You know, from there on, yeah, Berbatov, very Tottenham player, Modric, Bale. Um, you know, they they kind of they were they were standouts in their category, just not as a team. I mean, Ginola and Bale both won PFA Player of the Year awards whilst at Tottenham, whilst getting absolutely nowhere near a title challenge. Mm. And there was never that sort of long-term vision that say, hey, we could build something around Bale. It, it was always more like, oh, maybe we could sell this guy and, you know, re reinvest it. Look, I, I think every team wants to hold on to their best players, but you just, you can't say no to Real Madrid. This is, this is exactly what happened when Modric and Bale left. I do not know a single Spurs fan who begrudged them for leaving. You're leaving yeah, a hard. team yeah. who says they want to get into fourth for a team that says they want to win back-to-back -back European championships. 
you know, the sort of Champions Leagues. I mean, and want to pay Spurs handsomely for doing it. I mean, you're not in that position financially or in the stature of a club to say no to that. So you can't hold players back. And I think that's one thing that, that Spurs and any club needs to take a long time in reversing. You can't have history and status of the club um, just, you know, just built up over the course of a few one or two years it needs to take a long time yeah, Amen to that uh, mm. so we're, we're going to talk about top three moments in, in the club's history I'm reckoning the double is up there uh, with the, the given it's so enshrined in, in Tottenham's identity um, yes what else what else makes it in um, that that is probably one of the biggest um, I would say reaching the Champions League final and I know you're going to say hold on Matt you lost how, how can that be up there? It was the culmination of everything that a modern Spurs team and the club had worked towards. And I think just getting there helped helped to make the club realise where they could get to and kind of really, you know, gave them slightly more reputation and, like I said, slightly more holding within within the footballing community in terms of, um, you know, building a project and attracting players and keeping players there. Um, yeah, I think that was absolutely massive. And I think as well, some of, some of the greatest memories, I mean, I wasn't alive for it, but we never shut up about it, was the, uh, the semi-final against Arsenal in 1991. Oh, um, in the FA Cup, Gascoigne's free kick. That, that's one of the, still one of the best free kicks I've ever seen yeah. in my life. Exactly. And I think that kind of obviously it's woven into the history of, of the rivalry with Arsenal as well um, but I just think for Tottenham as their you know their last FA Cup triumph and that victory and everything around it it was just that was just sort of one of the stories of football at the time and I think it's a huge moment um, in Spurs' history certainly on the pitch Okay and um, we, when we mention worst moments what do we think of? Saul Campbell? Uh, off the pitch, yes. Okay. I think that was, again, a real kick in the teeth to see a player who was so good for Tottenham. And captain. And captain. Then go on to win trophies. With and Arsenal. And win titles and win with Arsenal. I think that really summed up Spurs in that era is that you could be as good as you like at Tottenham, but it's going to do nothing for your personal victories. Um and yeah, you know, so many players outgrew the club in such a short amount of time. Um, but yeah, I'd also put, personally for me, losing the Champions League final. <laughs> um, you know, the best and the worst moments. Yeah. It was, I got to share it with my brother and my dad, who I've been going to Tottenham with for 20 odd years, and we were there. And it was, the, you know, the biggest game in the club's history, the biggest game in, in club football in the world. And yeah, we conceded the penalty within the first 30 seconds, so... Oh, that was the life it. of a Spurs fan. <laughs> uh, the, the Campbell thing, though, when you, mm. look, when you think about it now, that he went to your biggest rival for free after saying he would stay and, yeah. then, and then go on and win trophies with that and become... Yeah, yeah. become An invincible. Yeah, become an invincible. So, therefore, you know, one of the greatest players in that club's history. Yeah. I, it's just it's a really astounding story <laughs> just amazing just when, when you I, think I, about it, it it is really amazing I still can't get my head around it yeah uh, but I, I I just think as well it just yeah it basically goes to show that Spurs had some phenomenal players down the year because 
obviously you get one over your rivals is funny but at the time as a mid to lower table team what makes a title challenging team think that a player from you know a club that's whatever 14th 13th is good enough to help them to the title Mm. it's not often but it just shows how good a player that Spurs had and you know could have in their team at any given moment without necessarily having the strongest squad um, here's your chance to wax lyrical about Robbie Keane because mm. I want to know who who's the sort of iconic player the one who, who represents what the what the club's all about what now or from history uh, well I, I can take both answers from you yeah. Uh, well, I think like we said, Bill Nicholson was a player as well. So mm. he, he does the player manager of the club's history. Um, honestly, this is a question that the, the answer depends on the era you grew up in. Okay, well, let's give it, let's give it for your one then, because that's most yeah. relevant for you. For, for, for my era, I would say Robbie Keane. Oh, that's he, what he I want to hear. He was certainly up there, I think. Um, as a big money signing it kind of you know didn't go right for him at Inter and he came back to Leeds and we signed it from Leeds that was the first time I certainly remember of having a player who was um, it just seemed to have real genuine quality but not so much quality that a big club would sign him <laughs> except for Liverpool yeah except for Liverpool but I mean you know he was what did he have five years at Spurs I think he was top scorer every year until the last one when Berbatov came in um, oh he did yeah, great he, he was, did a great record at Spurs uh, nearly a goal, yeah, every, yeah. Two, a goal every two games or so exactly and that was you know that was fantastic that was you know after a period of seeing Sergei Rebrov come and go yeah. <laughs> um, Chris Armstrong Stefan Everson um you know, T- Teddy Sheringham was old. He was still doing bits, but he was a bit old. Um, Chris Armstrong did not work at, Sp- at Spurs at all. No. no. I mean, I'm trying to think who else you had up front. God, I think we had um, Bobby Zamora came and went. We had Les Ferdinand Gregor, for a while. Gregor Zraziak. Yeah, Les Ferdinand, probably towards his latter years. Mm. Um, but yeah, that, those guys were, for me, they were sort of, they were 90s players. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Robbie Keane, for, for me, definitely represented a new era of striker and he had ability like I've never seen and he was a very passionate kind of guy. And uh, yeah, I, I met him a few years ago, actually. Oh, did you? Yeah, he was... Uh, I went to watch... I was in Seattle and I went to watch the Sounders play LA Galaxy and uh, and I was shouting from the side. I was like, Robbie, come over. So he came over, took a quick picture with him. And I just said, thank you so much for all of the memories at White Hart Lane. And he was like, yeah, no worries. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, who's this maniac? <laughs> uh, yeah. Was so he, he was playing? Like, was he playing or yeah, he was yeah, on the played, bench? Yeah, yeah. No, but he played. Uh, him, Ashley Cole, Stephen Gerrard. No, yeah, but when you, when, you, when you got the photo, was he playing or was he on the bench? No, no, he was playing. It was just uh, it was after the warm up before they jogged uh, back in. Okay, okay, fine. It wasn't like kind of mid match. He wasn't. No, no, no. no, no. Take photos with you. Okay. Um, um, well then, let's yeah, go. I would say maybe him. We'll go with Keen then. Um, let's get your your top of the table at the moment. Mm. What's the What's the aim for this season then? Is it to stay? Surely not. <sighs> you know, before the season starts, you look at top four. Um, and say you have to get back into it. As soon as you drop out, you have to get back in. Having said that, seeing how unpredictable the season is um, and how Mourinho seems to have molded the team and the additions that were made in the summer, I don't see why not. For, for me, and I've seen it all too many times as a Spurs fan, it's the consistency. 
that just lets Tottenham down. The same, the same Tottenham team that will beat Man United six-one away will be the same Tottenham team that lets three goals in the last eight minutes to West Ham. <laughs> and I think that's what will always come back to. It will always haunt every Spurs fan until the day that we don't do it. <laughs> if you get what I mean. And I think that's what that's what we're hoping will change this season. I've got to say very quickly, sorry, I would throw in Harry Kane, obviously, for that previous question about the iconic player, but I just, yeah. No, that's okay. You can you can leave it at that. You can leave it at, uh, <laughs> at, at, at Robbie. Of course, you'd say that. Okay, so let's let's get a, let's get one final a final prediction of mm. where where you're going to end up in the league this season. Oh, where are we going to end up? Do it with your fan hat on. With my fan hat on. Mm-hmm. Being as as hopeful as possible. Yeah. Mm. Oh, I've got to say it first. I'll go for it. Oh, Matt, this is going to come back around you. This this is going to come back to me, and I'm prepared to look stupid <laughs> because with Mourinho, I have the faith that he can kind of. I don't know. Something feels a bit different. Okay. I feel like he he's he's the difference maker. I know people slag him off and everything especially after the United game. I just feel like he's the missing piece to that puzzle to take these guys to the next level. Well, well, let's see. Thanks very much, man. I hope so. No worries. Okay, that's all from us today. My thanks to Joanna, Marcus, Manu and Matt. We'll be back next week, but in the meantime, should you miss us, you can listen to the back catalogue on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, wherever it is you get your podcast hit and the address to get in touch is podcast.1football.com. 